You know, thinking much of New College over the last several days with new students arriving, with orientation, with looking back and thinking about the history and those small beginnings and had me thinking a little bit about the beginnings of Cornerstone, had me thinking about the beginnings of this local congregation and the recognition that when we begin and as we begin, there's all kinds of expectations, there's all kinds of hopes and dreams and ways in which we think things will manifest themselves. And you know what's always the case? It's never like how we imagined it. It's always different than how it is that we conceived it. God always surprises us, and the road is always different than the one we expect to walk. That's true not just for institutions, that's true individually in each of our lives as we walk by faith and not by sight. It is certainly true for Abram as we see it here in the passage that's before us. Coming from what we might consider one of the highest moments in his life, God speaking to him and leading him to the promised land and then going headlong into one of the early low moments in his walk of faith. And today we will see in some sense from 12, 1 through 9 last week, a certain type of faith powerfully strong and exhibited through Abram to a faltering faith that gives way to fear and doubt in verses 10 and 20, leading all the way to 13, verse 4, which is where we find ourselves this morning. And as we see these two Abrahams, it's important that we see there's not actually two. It's that two of these two realities are at war within him. And those two realities are at war within each of us. With that knowledge and expectation, let's turn our attention to the Word of God, beginning in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 12 and extending to verse 4 of chapter 13. This is God's Word. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarah, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. 
Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he journeyed on from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called on the name of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we believe that it is your word and your word alone that stands forever. It is not going to be our thoughts, our intentions, or our will. It's your will, your thoughts, and your intentions that's going to stand forever. And so as we come into this place to hear your word right now, we would ask that that word, which will stand forever, would be the word that would pierce our hearts and would be the word that would become enduring in our minds, that it would be unforgettable and would make a lasting impression upon us, so much so that it would not just be a lesson here or there that we would learn, but that we might be of testimony this day that we have met with our God, and he has transformed us by his word. Come and glorify yourself in our midst and take us by the hand and lead us that we might walk faithfully by faith. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've probably heard the saying, we've come a long way to be nowhere. In some sense, that's the story of uh, Genesis chapter 12. Where it is that we find Abram at the very beginning of this passage in verse 10 is where it is we find him at the end of this passage in 13.4. Back to the place of his beginnings. And yet, that circle that he made, well, he learned a lot in that circle. Sometimes we don't go very far geographically in a journey because God is taking us somewhere far spiritually in our walk of faith. Abram had to, in this case, learn to walk by faith, but it wouldn't get him further in one sense down the road. It would bring him back to the place that he should have never left. And a lot of our Christian life is learning that lesson. It's not that we have some place always to go. Sometimes we need to stay put in exactly where it is that the Lord has placed us. Easier said than done. I was reading this week in my own Bible reading from Mark chapter 9, one of my favorite stories actually. It's a sad story at one level because we have a young boy who is demon-possessed. He has convulsed and foamed at his mouth since childhood. And his disciples, Jesus' disciples, that is, have tried to give the boy help. They've tried to cast out the demon, but they've been unable to do so. The father now comes to Jesus with the son as a last-ditch effort. And he says, if there's anything you can do, would you have compassion on us? Would you help us? And Jesus says, all who believe, if you believe, if you have faith... It shall be done for you. And the man says something that I believe for many of us are an explanation, a snapshot, even a summary of what it's like for us walking by faith. He, he says to Jesus, I believe. 
Help my unbelief. I believe. Help my unbelief. I think when we hear those five words, I believe, help my unbelief, we think, yeah, that's it. That's where so much of my life seems to be situated. A faith that I've laid hold of that I've not yet really grasped. A faith that I believe that I'm trying to believe. A faith that was strong yesterday, but for some reason is not so much today. A faith that sometimes is as natural as breathing and the smile on my face as I enjoy the presence and direction of the Lord. And then the next day is as if the oxygen of faith has been sucked out of the room and I'm gasping for faith. And sometimes we can't even figure out what happened. Why did it change? Where did we go wrong? It's actually those kind of questions that we want to explore this morning in this text. Because we've seen Abram, the man of faith, the father of faith, as he's referred to in Romans chapter 4, last week answering the call of God, walking at the Lord's bidding. And now we see Abram, the man whose faith is faltering. The, the man who's decided to chart his own course. The man who's walking now to the, to the beat of the, his own mind and to the drum of his own mind. Who's making his own life decisions and walking through transitions with narrow thought of God. What happened to the Abraham of faith? Well, we'll get back to him. You'll see him later over the course of our journey. The point of this passage is not so much the faithfulness of Abram. No, the point of this passage is the faithfulness of Abram's God. The faithfulness of Abram's God. And really, as we study the life of Abram over the course of the fall, more and more we'll come back to that reality. But a few lessons first. What does this passage really teach us? Well, firstly, this passage teaches us that underneath our worldly fears, there is a lack of faith in God. Underneath our worldly fears, there is a lack of faith in God. In verse 10, right at the beginning of our text this morning, we read this. There was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now, if you were with us last week and you've been reading along with us, maybe even using our devotional this week as we've had you in Hebrews and other places in the Scriptures reflecting back on the story of Abram, you're somewhat surprised at the opening of verse 10 to hear there's a famine in the land. You're surprised because God has just led Abram on a harrowing journey out of his homeland, leaving everything behind to go to the place that he will show him, which is the land of Canaan, the promised land. And God has, if you will, just dropped off Abram, like some of you may be dropping off some kids in college, dropping off kids at school for the first time. He's just dropped off Abram in the land of Canaan. He had moved into the land of Canaan and he said to Abram, Abram. I've given this land to you and to all of your, your, your lineage after you. This is your inheritance. And you know what we saw with Abram? He built an altar and he worshiped the Lord. That's where we found him at the end of verse 9. And then we hear there's a famine in the land. So let's just get perspective. He's in the promised land and there's a famine. It's very unpromising. If you were going on a real estate venture... For a place that later is called a land flowing with milk and honey, 
it in this moment looks like a dried prune. It's producing nothing. It's not lush. It's not fruitful. It's not a place that you can inhabit. God has left Abram, as it were, in the promised land, which is a wilderness. And so Abram, in the midst of this, finds himself in a place of desperation. And I have to believe the question that would raise in Abram's mind is the question that would raise in our mind, why did God do this? Even if he's brought me to the right place, he's clearly brought me to the right place at the wrong time. Why has he brought me to a place that he calls the promised land that will be the inheritance of my people and is one in which I can't even live, I can't even be here in order to survive? What exactly is God doing? Why is it that I'm here and no one else would want to be here while I'm here? When I think the answer is really simple. This is Abram's first test of faith. Now, Abram, throughout the course of his life, is going to go through many tests of faith. This is just number one. You'll remember some of the biggies. Like, I'm going to give you a son and a barren wife. That's a test. I'm going to provide for you in your old age a son of which the inheritance will go forth and all of my covenant promises will be fulfilled. And by the way, Sarah, I can't have children. But I will open up her womb magically far after childbearing years and I will give to you a child. And Abram waits for decades and nothing happens. Until he you know, takes matters into his own hands and produces Ishmael through Hagar, the son of his doubt. And then God comes back and in his faithfulness through Sarai brings forth the son of faith named Isaac. And Abram has to learn this whole lesson over again of trusting the Lord even in the midst of the wilderness. But he'll learn it again later in this story where he's gotten Isaac, this promised son, and then God says, you know what, Abram, Abraham, at this point, I want you to go to Mount Moriah and I want you to sacrifice your one and only son. And Abraham has to take another walk of faith and he walks up Mount Moriah with knife in hand, wood for the fire, his own son that's to be the sacrifice, carrying the wood. And right before he kills his son, in commanding from God's own voice, following the Lord's call upon his life, the Lord stays his hand through the voice of an angel and provides a sacrifice with the ram that's caught in a thicket. You see, those are greater tests of faith than even the one that we see here before it, but it's this test of faith that gets him ready for those. Do you, do you see, do you want your faith to grow? It grows by being tested. It grows by being tested. That is how faith grows. It, God has put Abram in a position where he's continually stretching him to follow God's call and find his home in God's call. To find that God himself will be his dwelling place. Not the land of promise. Not circumstances. Not how he feels about things. Not how the prospectus looks like. Not the portfolio. Not the five and ten year plan that he scripted with the expectations that are in his mind. No, he wants him to find his home in the call of God. A day by day, moment by moment walk of faith that goes only at the bidding of the voice of the good shepherd. That's what he wants. 
This is Abraham's first test of faith. And he's bringing this test of faith before him in order to grow his faith that he might continue to be the man of faith as he faces greater trials of faith in the days to come. And the trial is really clear at this point. And the trial, if we can put it, is, is this. Will Abram live by bread alone or by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Will Abram live by bread alone or will he live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God? Put it differently, is God and his word enough for Abram? That's the question. The reason I put it that way is last week, if you were with us, and if not, you can let your eyes maybe wander back over 12, 1 through 9 in the scriptures. And what you see in that passage is that Abram's actions, every single one of them, are dominated by God's voice. God speaks and Abram goes. God speaks, Abram stops. God tells him this is your land. He builds an altar. Everything he does is in response to the bidding of God. This week, we don't even see a mention of God in the first six verses. We see him making major life decisions, significant transitions, and not even a note, not even a whisper from or to God. The only time God's presence is even noted or mentioned in the text is when he brings a plague in Egypt to protect Sarai when she's being compromised. What has happened to Abram is what happens to you and I so often. Is we see a circumstance and we become consumed with the crisis of the circumstance rather than looking to the God of the circumstance. And fear wells up within our hearts. And what do we do? We've got to figure out how to get through it. What do we do? We, we, we hatch a plan. Egypt. They have the Nile. They have the Nile River. There's always water. There's that river basin. There's, there's lush greenery. There, there's wonderful provision. We could go down there and let, let's, get, let's, let's leave the land of promise to go to Egypt. Now just think about that, friends. I don't know how often you've spent time in the Old Testament, but typically when the people of Israel end up in Egypt, there's some provision that happens on the front end, but there's some disaster that happens on the back end. In some ways, what seems to be the indication potentially of the text here is that Abram, in this moment of crisis of faith, has concocted a plan and has chosen a different promised land from the one in which the Lord has given to him. And he did it by virtue of looking at the circumstances rather than the God of the circumstances. He has functionally forgotten God. Now, he's not outright denied him. He's not disavowing his faith. This is not apostasy. He's, not, he's still warming a pew on Sunday morning. But he's living without reference to God the rest of the week. He's going to go into his board meeting. He's going to go into his classroom. He's going to go into his, his, his family life at night. He's going to sit around the table and there's going to be narrow thought of how God would be leading, how God is calling. Nearly a thought with regards to how the Lord is calling him to in those moments. Whenever we find ourselves eaten up with worldly fear, it is because at the base of it there is some lack of faith in God and his promises and his word. 
And so this passage is calling us to identify what are the areas of our lives where we are fearful. What are the things you're looking at as you take survey and just for a moment inventory of your life? Where is it that you're shaking in your boots about this next week or this next month or this next year? And, and how is it that you're responding to that? Are you finding yourself quick pivot to prayer to God? To go to his word, to pour over his truth, to speak with others, to gain ministerial help so that you can gain perspective? Or are you turning to Egypt? Are you looking for the bread of the world rather than to the bread of life? In order to guide you, in order to lead you. Now, why do I put it in that way? Because I think there's a second lesson here. If I were to even raise this question, how do you know if you're doing that? You know, really looking to the world rather than looking to God? Well, I think I'm looking to God. I think, I mean, I still pray. I'm still having my quote-unquote daily devotional. I'm still walking with him in some, some sense of the word. How do you know if you're really walking by faith? I'd, I'd like to ask this, you to think through this. One of the indications that you know you're looking more to yourself than to God is if you're constantly scheming and thinking about life without reference to him. If you're constantly thinking and scheming about life without real reference to him, without, not, without genuine reference to him. Because I think what you see in verses 11 to 16 in this text is the second principle that I want you to, want you to know. Second lesson from this passage when we're operating in worldly fear, we always produce faithless strategies for survival. When we're operating in fear, we always produce faithless strategies for survival. Okay, principle one, when we're eaten up with worldly fear, we lack faith in God. And so how do we know that if we're eaten up with worldly fear? Are we constantly coming up with scheming towards strategies that are faithless in order to survive? Now, what do I mean by that? Well, let's look at the text. In verses 11 to 16, what's somewhat ironic, again, another irony, promised land famine. That's number one irony. Number two is Abram leaves the promised land out of fear that he's going to die. And he enters Egypt fearful that he's going to die. The plan that he's come up with to go into Egypt, the cure, as it were, is worse than the disease. As he's on the outskirts of Egypt, he turns to his wife Sarah and thinks, oh boy, she's beautiful. They're going to notice her. And when, when they notice her, they're going to inquire of her. And when they learn that I'm her husband, they're going to kill me. And then they're going to they're gonna take her. And so you almost, it almost feels you know, paranoia here, right? Fear begets fear. Now he's walking in. He's concocted this plan of survival. But now it's beginning to unravel before he even comes. He begins to realize we need to make some adjustments on this plan on the fly. We've got to come up with a way to get through this. Sarah, here's the way we're going to do it. We're going to say that you are my sister. We're going to say that you're my sister. Now... As you may well know, Abram here is working from an old tradition, an old custom. It would have been true in the Near Eastern culture at the time. If there's no father present, there's an older brother present, and there's a sister that's available. It's the older brother who takes, as it were, legal guardianship of his sister, especially when it comes to things like would-be suitors. Abram is putting himself in a position that if she is approached for marriage, being available since they're not married, right? Their brother and sister, 
he would negotiate with whoever it is that wanted to marry her. And during the negotiations, which would take some time, he would, of course, plot his escape, hopefully with a lot of food, so at least they could get away for a period of time. It's, it's a pretty smart plan, to be quite honest, from a human scheme. In fact, its brilliance is increased when you realize that she is actually Abram's half-sister. Now, we learn this later in the book of Genesis. So he technically can soothe his own conscience a little bit, in thinking, I'm not really lying, I'm just not telling the whole truth about what it is that's going on. And so if you look at it from a sheer human perspective, some of us might say to ourselves, this man is a genius. What an incredible plan he's come up with. And to some degree, from a worldly perspective, it is genius. It's an incredible plan. But let us not confuse genius with godliness. Let us not confuse an intelligent scheme with God's will and call. Those are not identical. Though Abram is not technically telling a lie, he is intentionally deceiving. Which is to say he has chosen to live a lie. To present forward what is not actually the whole truth. Now, I will tell you, scholars debate. Scholars debate whether Abram has done anything wrong here. Is he wrong going to Egypt? Is he wrong coming up with this plan? Some see it as a faithful, covenantal scheme. And part of the reason they see it that way is that later he's blessed with all kinds of things. As he leaves Egypt and, it, and, and there's not this, as it were, clear indictment from God. The indictment comes more from the voice of Pharaoh. Fascinatingly, Pharaoh lectures Abram at the end about integrity. <laughs> um, somewhat unusual, wouldn't have expected that. But in some sense, we're raising the issue. Is this really wrong? Is there something wrong here? Well, I, I think that that's a misunderstanding of the tech, especially, especially when you get to the motivational level for why Abram is doing this. If going to Egypt was not technically wrong, and if this scheme is kind of within the range of possibility, what is clear within the text is the reasons for why he did it were sinful. Just listen to the way that the text reads. I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Now pause. You would half expect to hear when you get there, they're going to see you beautiful. You're my wife, and I want you protected. I want you cared for. I love you. I will do anything within my power to guard you. I will lay down my life for you. I will sacrifice for you. I will do whatever it takes to be a faithful husband for you. That's almost, if you just pause in text, you think that's where he's going with this. It's a little bit of a twist of mind when he says, they're going to see you and kill me. Where's his focus? On himself. The whole thing's about him. He doesn't want to die. So why don't we put you in a really compromising position? Why don't we hang you out to dry, wife I'm called to love and protect? And say that you're my sister and use you almost as you will be used as a kind of bait. An open invitation for the men of Egypt to come and to seek you out for marriage. 
He says in verse 3, it's brazen. In verse 13, he says, that it may go well with me. <laughs> Not you, Sarah. That it may go well with me because of you. And that my life might be spared. Never mind the fact that your purity might be compromised. Or that you might find yourself attached to the harem of Pharaoh, as we see over the course of this passage. It's remarkable. You see, when we are filled with fear and we have lacked our faith in God, we begin in that fear to brainstorm faithless strategies for survival. And we begin compromising righteousness and integrity and truth and love all along the way. And why is this happening? Because Abram has totally lost sight of God and his promises. Just think about it for a minute. Let's just pull back from the text. Abram was just promised in the previous section that he's going to have a son. And that son is going to have many sons. And all the families of the earth are going to be blessed through the son that Abram has. Now, let me just ask you, does Abram have a son yet? No. So is he going to die without a son? No. Does Abram think like that? No. You see how that would have changed things? Had we just let the promises of God do our thinking for us, rather than thinking we were smart enough to do it on our own, he probably wouldn't gotten to the trouble that he found himself in. It reminds me of that wonderful verse in Proverbs, Proverbs 3, verses 5 to 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understandings, but in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. I was listening recently to Eric Alexander on this passage, beautiful message, and he said, so wayward had Abram become that he had become more trusting of a lie than the Lord. He'd become more trusting, more confident in a lie, a well-crafted lie, than of the Lord who had made his covenant promises to him. Listen, difficult situations in life become increasingly difficult when we approach those situations faithlessly with human wisdom and strategies. They become more complex because we fail to acknowledge God in all of our ways. Could it be that you're working so hard right now and so frenetically and so with so much anxiety and with so much stress in so many different areas of your life because you are trying to control the outcomes? You think you're writing the story. And you're eaten up by it. He's trying to control the outcomes. I want to survive. I want it to go well with me. I want to do this thing. We've got to do this stuff in order to do it. And he's, he, he's trying to control rather than giving over to the call of God. Rather than giving over to the call of God. God will protect him. I mean, think about it. In your own, maybe you're having health issues. And as you look over the course of your health, you're reading the scientific journals. You're talking with references to doctors. You're, you've got your ginger and your turmeric and your essential oils. And you're, you know, you've got it all. I mean, there ain't nothing going to get you. And then something gets you. And you think, what did I do wrong? And you go back to the journals and you go back and you come up with a new plan. You know, you're always coming up with a new plan. And then someone asks you, have you prayed about this? And you feel that sinking feeling inside? 
Like, no, I was actually more trusting of the chemistry than of the God behind the chemistry. Now, is the chemistry wrong? No. And is Nate telling you not to use essential oils? No. Nate's not telling you that. He's telling you not to trust the essential oils. Use them. Take the turmeric, take the ginger, get on the gluten-free, do whatever you need to do. Don't trust it. Do it, but don't trust it. The Lord may be pleased to use it. He may not be pleased to use it. Trust the Lord behind it. Trust the Lord, the maker of those things. In your job, in your career, with your finances, do you believe, and is it a regular part of your understanding as you approach your money, that your God owns everything in heaven and earth? And that he will not leave his children begging bread? He promises that to you in his word. Is that a part of the core value of how you approach the financial prospectus? of what it is that you look like? Or do you find yourself just constantly eaten up with the next plan, with the next scheme to be able to accomplish? It could be that you're doing very good things from very bad motivations because you have lost sight of the God who is the Lord of the circumstance. Where are you leaning on your own understanding rather than in all of your ways. That word all is an important word. In the Hebrew, it means all. It means everything. All your ways. Not just some of your ways. Not just the religious things. All your ways. And he will make your paths straight. Let me just ask you, does this look like a straight path? This is not a straight path. This is a circuitous path. This is a confusing path. When we have... Worldly fears that have eaten us, it's because we have a lack of faith in God. And when we operate on the fullness of that faith, we create faithless strategies for survival. And here's what's so beautiful. Because you and I, right? I mean, we're all, there's not a one of us not feeling a little conviction, right? I, I feel it. And when I look at this, this is why when I look at this text, I think, oh Lord, please give us hope. And, and here's what we see. Thirdly, finally, and most importantly, in the midst of these lessons, in the midst of our faithlessness, our faithful God delivers us. In the midst of our faithlessness, our faithful God delivers us. I keep waiting for Abram to come to his senses. I keep thinking, okay, when's the prodigal moment? Like, when's he going to go like, this was dumb? Was it the moment that, that he saw Sarai go into Pharaoh's house and he went, oh no, that's different than what I thought was going to happen. There was no negotiation. Um, he just took her. <laughs> She's gone now. <laughs> you know, so what are we going to do? Uh, you know, was it that moment? I don't know. The text actually doesn't tell us. It, it, what, it, what the text tells us is that God comes in on mission to deliver Abram out of the foolishness that his fear has caused. I want you to see what's beautiful about what's happening here. In the midst of this Pharaoh's house, a, a, a plague, we're told, falls upon them. In some way, shape, or form, they come to understand that it's because Sarai is in their midst. Now, I mean, we can conjecture a little bit about this. Maybe it's that Sarai didn't have any of the effects of whatever plague this was. And they begin to go, hmm, that's unusual. Uh, I think she's a clue. And she spilled the beans. And, and Pharaoh learns, okay, you're actually married to Abram. And this, this plague is upon us because of what has been done wrong. We're not sure of what the situation is. But I want you to see even behind the circumstance of what it is that God's doing in deliverance, that God, through his promises 
and the power of his presence goes into Pharaoh's home and brings about a plague and he protects his seed. He protects his seed in the den of the serpent. That's what he does here. He is the husband of Sarai in this text. He is the faithful one. Her husband hung her out to dry, left her unguarded in the moment of attack. She has been brought into the ranks of paganism and God is there with her. He is going to accomplish his promised redemption. Now, you might have had a little bell go off when you read that word plague. You think, I think I've seen this somewhere before. Like people going to Egypt and plagues and bad stuff. You've seen that before. It's called Exodus. We're going to see this replayed again later in the story of the Old Testament. And let me just give you a little bit of, of the arc of it. Joseph, because of a famine, takes his, his family, he goes to Egypt because of abandonment. His family comes. Israel is born. There they are, millions of people in, in Egypt, and they're provided for, but they come under slavery. God's going to lead his people out. Plagues fall upon the, on Egypt. And what, is, what needs to happen that Pharaoh won't do? He won't let the people go. What needs to happen in this text? He's got to let her go. He's got to let Sarai go. There is a let my people go in this text. And the my people go in this text is Sarai, the godly seed, the one through which Isaac will be born, that will later create the story of Joseph, will later create the narrative of Exodus. These plagues have fallen, but God is bringing out his holy seed. He is still going to accomplish his holy will. God has gone on mission to accomplish his redemption, and he plucks us out of our foolishness in the midst of his faithfulness to deliver us. That's the story of this text. And that's why when we get back in 13, 1 to 4, and he's back at the old tent place that he was at before between Bethel and Ai, he's come a long way to go nowhere. But the truth is this. He's come back to where he must have, should have always been. God has brought forth an exodus. And he has brought him back to the promised land. And notice what he does. He sacrifices And in verse 4, finally, he calls on the name of the Lord. He calls on the name of the Lord. What he should have been doing all along the way, he finally was led to do through the exasperation of his human schemes. Isn't that so often the case, friends? We make one decision that we think will be better and, and reverse the bad decision we just made. So we make a second bad decision and then it gets worse. But instead of actually humbling ourselves, we just try to make another decision to route the former bad decision and things just continue to get worse until finally we reach the end of our rope and what happens? We have to call out to the Lord. And all of a sudden things begin to be right. They begin to be healed because it was always plan A to call upon the name of the Lord. That is the plan. You see, the full compromising of the promises of God are actually in this text. It's quite remarkable. God had promised Abram a land and he left it. 
God had promised Abram a son, and he left his wife unguarded, being left in Egypt, potentially to be defiled. God had promised Abram a great name. What's his name now in Egypt? Mud. That's what it is. He was promised that he would become a blessing to all the families of the earth. What does he become to the people of Egypt? Nothing but a curse. You know how he managed to do all that? By not following God. And that's how we managed to do it too. And it's only until the Lord through his faithfulness delivers us and picks us up and puts us back where it is that we need to be. And at the altar, we learn to call upon the name of the Lord. And it could be today that today may be the finally for some of you in this room. Is today the finally where you will come to the altar of the Lord and you will call upon the name of the Lord and you will cease striving and you will know that he is God? Is today that day? In what area of your life is the Lord calling you to that today? What is it? We all have one. What is it for you? Where is your anxiety? Where is your control? Where is your fear? Call upon the name of the Lord. Call upon the name of the Lord. He has you right where he wants you. Even if it's not where you want to be. Because he is testing your faith to prepare you for where it is he's going to take you. Without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he's committed to you being holy. John Calvin said it best last week as we were reflecting upon the call of God. Calvin said... He calls Abram to go forward with his eyes closed, not even to inquire where it is that he will lead until you are holy gods. And I believe that's the Lord's call upon our life today. To close our eyes, as it were, and to not even inquire where it is he's going to lead us, but to listen to his call and to obey And to keep saying yes until we're wholly His. Because here's where we're going. We're going to the finish line. And when we get to the finish line, we will have found that our God carried us there. We will find that He carried us there. And that all the exertion and the futility of all of the human scheming that we have done amounted to absolutely nothing. But all of His faithfulness will shine like the sun. And so let's let it shine like the sun now. Because where we are weak, friends, he is strong. Let him show his strength through your weakness and call upon the name of the Lord. Father in heaven, we would ask that this would indeed be the spiritual reality that you perform in our lives. That we would be a people who cease striving and know that you are God. A people who acknowledge that with all of our wit and wisdom, it amounts to zero. We just make a mess of things. It is we who need to quit relying upon our own reason and start trusting in your revelation. Lord, would you make that so clear to us? Would you make it so unforgettable to us today? That we won't shake out of us this afternoon as we go into this week. But Lord, as it will over the course of our lives 
And as we will need to continue to learn this, we ask that each time we do, we grow a little bit more strong in our faith in you. And so let this first test of faith for Abram teach us about the continued preparation for what it is that you have him to do in the days to come. And let the trials and the tests of our life right now be to us something we embrace from your hand, knowing that you're preparing still more for us in the future. And we need not worry about what that call will be because you will fit us when the time is right. One day at a time. Sweet Jesus, come and lead us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.